If you have a copy of God's Word, um, you're going to be all over the map. So do your best. Uh, If you're a note taker, we're using the same notes as last week because we didn't get through everything. So hopefully you brought that back with you. Or if you didn't, you were able to pick up a copy on your way in if you're a note taker. Or you can just scribble quickly uh, on your own. Uh, What we're talking about is, is finances. Uh, now, what I said last week, and I'll say it again, it's a lot of times churches talk about finances when they have some kind of a campaign that they're working towards. And that's okay. I understand why pastors do that. I understand why churches do that. Um, and a lot of times when I'm dealing with counseling with folks, a lot of times we talk about finances because that's a marital issue. And that's okay. Uh, and we can deal with that. Uh, but as we are going through Matthew and we're in chapter 19, one of the main things that people do fight about in marriage is finances because it can be a contentious issue. And so I wanted to uh, bring the marriage conference to you, so to speak, right? And uh, don't raise your hand. You, you make your spouse feel bad. But I asked you questions about if you guys deal with money issues. But the thing about it is, is that you don't have to be married to have money issues. Uh, any of us who are single understand that you can still have money issues even just by yourself. And my point to that was and is again today that finances are really stem from our hearts. And so I want to attach the gospel to our wallets. I want to attach the gospel to our wallets, whether you're married or not, because we're still stewards of those things. And so some of the things that we talked about for last week as we're dealing with finances were these seven points. We got through three of of the seven points. We're going to try to tackle the other four today. And so as we do that, before we jump into where we left off, we're going to do a quick review. But before we even do that, will you guys please join with me in prayer? God, our Father, we ask today that your word would be heralded. We ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. There are so many of us that the gospel must be more connected to our wallets. We try and we want that. And if we're here on on Sunday regularly, God, if we know you as Lord and Savior, we want you. We want your will to be done. And we understand, we recognize it is hard, but not impossible. And so we pray, I pray that you would teach all of us these seven principles of how to connect the gospel to our wallets so that we would honor you with the things that you have given us. It is my prayer that that would affect marriages positively, the marriages that are represented here physically and those that are represented online, and that because of this, you would strengthen and heal and restore those places that are broken. And for those of us who are not married, God, I pray that you would help us to be good stewards of what you've given to us, that we might glorify you with our finances, because this is not just a married people issue. This is a spiritual issue. So please connect the gospel to our wallets today and use this word in our hearts to sanctify us so that we might more appropriately represent you to those around us. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. So some of the things we talked about last week as we began this was, firstly, we are stewards of that which God has given us, right? And I talked about the parable and how God had given them some five, some three, and some one, and the one guy buried it, you know, and he didn't do anything with it. We're stewards. Everything that we have belongs to God. He's given it to us so that we would take care of it and be good managers. And that is everything, not only from your finances, but everything, your children, all things, your health, your, your cars. You, you know, it, it doesn't matter what, you, what we're talking about here. God has given it to you to be a steward of. And so that was the first thing we talked about because you have to understand that before we move on to anything else, right? The second thing was be on your guard against your own greed, 
greed is what tells you you will be happy if you just have and then fill in the blank for you. Remember, that's what we talked about. A lot of us tend to think that greed doesn't affect us. It only affects all those people with all those other things, you know, those other folks. But greed affects all of us in one form or another. And if you're here this morning and you say, greed doesn't affect me, well then, brother, sister, you've got another problem. It's called pride. It's a whole other sermon. And so then the third thing that we touched on last week before we ran out of time was God's care for you is larger than your concerns over money. God's care for you is larger than your concerns over anything, really. And again, we're connecting the gospel to the wallet this morning. But if you just talk about parenting or your marriage, God cares about your marriage more than you care about your marriage. God cares about your children more than you care about your children. Uh, We went to a concert, Josh something, um, at Maranatha, where my wife and I will go for a vacation with our kids and stuff, is one of the kids' favorite ones, and my son bought a CD. And on the CD there, there's this song that is is talking about when his son was born, and he shared that with us. And it just reminds him of how much God actually loves us. And it pales in comparison, or our love for even our own children, our own spouse, or people in our lives, if you're not married, that our love for others pale in comparison to God's love for you. And he demonstrates that best through Jesus Christ and his Savior. Yes, that's a good place for an amen. So moving forward today... Uh, here's the first thing I want to share with you is one of, the, one of the sevens. Contentment is critical because of what it communicates. Our contentment is critical because of what it communicates. This communicates that you value God's presence and provision above all other things. And all of us, to some degree, again, struggle with contentment. We struggle with contentment in our marriage with our spouse. We struggle with contentment in our parenting with our children. We struggle with contentment if you're single, just with other relationships and things that you have. We struggle with contentment in our work atmosphere with our boss or our employees. We struggle with contentment in school with our teachers and with our assignments and all these kind of things. And so in every area of our life, we struggle with contentment on the highway when somebody cuts us off or doesn't merge the way that we know that they ought to merge, right? And so there's all kinds of areas of contentment that we struggle with. But that really communicates the value that we put on God and how we see God. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, the first section I want to take you to. So you can read up here. You can try to turn there in your Bible. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I'm going to assume it's Paul here. I know scholars debate with who this is that's writing this. I'm going to say Paul. Um, Whoever it is. What does he quote? He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God's always going to bless you and take care of you? Yes, but that's not what he quotes here. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who said that? Jesus says that. Jesus himself came down, took on the flesh, right? Was fully God, fully man, and has lived a life that you and I cannot. And so we live vicariously through his holiness and through his sacrifice on the cross. And he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you understand now as we continue to flesh this out how our contentment speaks to the world, how we value Christ and his sacrifice on the cross? If he has given us all things, how then can we still our hearts yearn and desire for more? That's that's sin. It's this idea of covetousness, right? Verse 6 So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? 
the worst man might be able to do to you is, is have a nicer car, nicer home. Or if they're with the IRS or the banks, they can take your car or your home. But nobody can take Jesus from you. And this is why the question is, especially for Americans, are you content? Are you content in your lot of, in life right now? I don't know how much you guys watch the news. I don't know what channel you watch of the news. I think it would behoove you to watch other nations' news and see what's happening in other countries and to see what other countries think about us. Not that I want to get into politics, and that's not what I'm, where I'm going to go, but what we need to understand as Americans is the poorest among us in this room right now is myriad above most of the world. We complain because uh, we, when we go out to eat, there's not enough servers to get us our meal under 30 minutes. When there is people in other countries that are literally mixing mud in with their bean pods so that they can have full bellies tonight. And we struggle with contentment. But you see, when we value Christ, when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, what more can we possibly want? Beloved, there is a time coming that we will have to stand and we will have to say, Christ has to be enough Because now things are being taken away from us. Our freedoms will be taken away from us. Our money will be taken away from us. Are we content with Christ and him alone? Another section is Philippians uh, 4, 10 through 13, which on here I think it's just 10. So in the back, Nick is going to click through as I read here. But uh, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now listen, this is a guy who's writing from prison a lot of the time. This is the guy who's writing after being persecuted a lot of the time. If you go to Acts, and you should, you can go to Acts, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't quote this. It's just coming to me right now, so whatever. Uh, Acts, if you go to Acts, you can find Paul's journey in Acts. You can find all the travail he went through. And he talks about, I was shipwrecked this many times. I had this happen this many times. I was afflicted by this. And, and, all the, and he, he lists through this list, okay? Brother, sister, I know times are rough. I know you're battling your own thing. You might even be somebody in here right now who has a life-threatening illness. And I'm still here to tell you, Paul can relate to you, and he has said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, and in Christ Jesus, you can too. That's another good place for an amen. I realize that's less friendly, but that, that was it. So, and he goes on to 12, and he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 13, and we love to quote this one, right? But we forget the context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What he's talking about there is his ability to be content in all situations. Don't lose sight of that. This is the context. If you've ever heard this or if you ever went to a Bible college, they ought to have told you context is king, right? You can't just rip things out of context like this. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's to Israel a long time ago. You can't give that to your college student when they graduate. You can pray that over them. That's fine, but that's not a graduation verse. 
This verse here is a contentment verse. We need to understand that as we walk through life together and as we quote that to one another. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not hit the high jump necessarily, right? Not pass the test I didn't study for. You can be content with your F and with your fail out of jumping the high jump, right? You can find contentment there because of Christ. That's what this verse is talking about. So we have to understand here, contentment is not only commanded but possible. Did you understand that contentment is actually commanded in Scripture? That we should be content? Contentment, really, if you think about it, is is a state of Christ-empowered joy in the midst of God-ordained circumstances that cannot be changed at that present time. I'll say that again if you want. I took that from a commentary, so I'm not taking credit for it, but this is what it says. A contentment, a definition of that might be a state of Christ-empowered joy in the midst of God-ordained circumstances that cannot be changed at the time. Not to say that they'll never be changed, but are you finding joy in Christ even in the midst of your storm? We love to sing those songs on the radio, right? about going through the storm, about having Christ in the storm. We love those stories about Peter who walked out on the water, but then when he took his eyes off Christ is when he began to sink. We love hearing those stories and singing those songs, but it's a far different thing, isn't it, when we're in the middle of that ourselves. Don't raise your hands. But I'm curious to know, myself included, I'm curious to know how many of us, when we're in the middle of a circumstance... God-ordained, that can't be changed at the time. How many of us are praying for the circumstances to change and to be fixed? And how many of us are just saying, can you help me be content right now? I don't know about you, but that preached a good word to me this morning. So we're not talking here about self-sufficiency or willpower. We're not talking about, you know, the British stiff upper lip, right? Or the American by your own bootstraps. Everybody's got a saying for that. Contentment is not a code for giving up either. So we can be content in our circumstances without just giving up. In fact, that, I believe, is a corruption of the meeting. As you think about what Paul was suffering through, he never gave up on the gospel. He never gave up of the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. Even in the circumstances, he was content with them. This is what he said, whether high or low, whether in prison or free, whether afflicted or, or not. And, uh, but he was continuously not giving up of the gospel. In fact, he was even using those times to write these letters of immense encouragement of which he is still feeding souls even today. And so when we think about contentment, here's some questions I might have for you, specifically dealing with finances then, right? Because we're connecting the gospel to our wallets. So are you able to say no to something that you want if it would not be pleasing to God, even if you have the money for it? And then second question I might have for you is, what dreams do you have for the future? Can you honestly say in your heart, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord? I have a dream that one day Elisa and I will have some property and own our own house. And we have had those conversations. Men, I'm sure you can relate to this. I have cried to her, telling her, I believe as a man it is my responsibility to provide for my family. And the way that I view provision and the way that my wife views provision are sometimes different. But I was crying to her and I'm like, this is something I think that as a man I'm supposed to do for you. I'm supposed to have a home for you that I own and that I'm providing for you. To which she very gently reminded me, we have a house. 
that we are living in because of you right now and because of the generosity of this congregation, obviously. And so we all battle with contentment, but contentment is critical because of what it communicates. And so can you be content in whatever circumstance you're in? Can you have Christ-centered joy regardless of the war that's raging around you or that which you think that you need that you don't currently have? Next, exercise wisdom to become a biblical planner. Now, some of us think that the best way to deal with finances is to not plan at all. Just open hand, whatever God wants, and we just, you know, we're, we're very free spirits with our finances. Uh, and then, especially if we're talking about marriages, you have the free financier, and then you have the biblical planner or the planner. We, we won't give them that much credit, right? You, you have, let's, let's do it how we would like to talk, right? You have the spender, and then you have the Scrooge, okay? We'll just call it that way. Because when you guys talk to each other, you're, you're, you're generally, that's kind of how you if we're honest, right? So you have the spender and the Scrooge. However, both need to conform to biblical wisdom to be a biblical planner. Proverbs 9. Uh, check that out this week on your own. So if you're a note writer, I don't have that on the screen. I did use it when I was preparing this and looking at this. So Proverbs 9, specifically 1 through 6 and 13 through 18. Um, go ahead and look at that. But I, I do want to take you to Proverbs, nonetheless, Proverbs 6. 6 through 11, Nick is going to run through these as I read them here. He's going to click through, but it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? We'll leave that. Uh, When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So, in Proverbs, the book of wisdom, we are constantly told, right, that we have a choice before us. And that's what you're going to find in Proverbs 9. It's this idea of choosing wisdom or choosing folly. And what Scripture wants from us is to choose wisdom. What wisdom says is we need to prepare for things that are going to come. So those of you who are the Scrooges, you may not elbow the person next to you or pat yourself on the back. If you're single, you don't pat yourself on the back and say, see, I knew I was right. Refusing to plan is irresponsible, absolutely, but what is the point of planning and why are we doing it and what does biblical planning actually look like is the question we should be asking. Because your view of biblical planning might not actually be, be biblical. Your pl- I guess I should have said your planning might not be biblical. So what does planning mean? First of all, we have to understand that refusing to plan is irresponsible. Why is it irresponsible? We'll go back to the first point because we're stewards, Right? Because we are stewards, because God has given us these things, we must be able to plan for them, right? Because uh, he cares for us, is larger than our concerns, then we should be able to look at Scripture and plan wisely. So I don't know about you, but sometimes you will be given more than what you need for that particular season in life. God may be giving you more for now because there's something coming in the future that he knows about. 
a while ago. I don't know if it's somebody who was reading the Bible who worked for Disney and decided to make a movie about this, but there were two movies that came out very simultaneously with one another. One was a Pixar, one was a Disney, I think, Bugs Life, and then some other thing that had to do with bugs. They're both ants. That's it. Yes, thank you. So ants and Bugs Life. I don't remember which one is which. I'm sorry. They were, they were very similar. So one of them I think Bugs Life had to do with these ants. They were gathering all this food, right? And the grasshoppers wanted it. So the grasshoppers came and there was this big battle and they brought out other bugs or whatever. You can watch the movie if you want, whatever. My point in saying that is is that Solomon, who's primarily the writer in Proverbs, a man of great wisdom before Christ, no other man of wisdom had greater wisdom, right? People even came from nations far away to, to hear and to see the wisdom of this man. He writes, go to the ant, O sluggard, and look at what they do. We have farmers in here. They will tell you, because I've been, I've, I've, I've helped with some of these things, or I've listened and I've heard, and what they'll say is, you've got to do the work when it's time to do the work. For example, I, I didn't know the difference between hay and straw till I came here. I know there's a difference now. I, I get it, okay? I didn't know the difference between hay and straw. But what they would tell me is, is that when it's time to cut the fields, it's time to cut the fields, And so when it's time to cut the fields, you cut the fields. And if that means that you work all night cutting the fields, that means you work all night cutting the fields because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. There might be a hailstorm or a rainstorm, and now all that stuff is ruined or you haven't got it up in time or you cut it, but then you didn't pick it up in time. And so there's all these factors. And so farmers, a lot of times, embody this because they understand I'm not always going to have the time to do these things that I'm supposed to do. Now, here in America, we call that a 401k or a retirement plan or those kind of things. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, okay? Because sometimes God provides now for something that's happening in the future. But the second part of biblical planning is biblical planning is not a nice word for hoarding. And I think that a lot of us tend to do that. Here's what biblical planning does. Biblical planning is not a nice word for hoarding, and the reason that we need it is because it facilitates contentment. Because then we have a plan, and we're not living by the seat of our pants. Planning encourages generosity. Because then when we know what the plan is, when we have been given more, we can, we can then now look for these opportunities to bless others financially because we have planned ahead, because we have been good stewards of what God has given us. And we're not biblical planning in a way of hoarding for ourselves, and we're content with what we have. And so therefore, it encourages and facilitates contentment and generosity. And then lastly, the whole part of biblical planning is it has to be dependent on the Lord. And I want for you to turn with me to James chapter 4, 13 through 17. Again, they're going to move through if you want to read with me, but this is what it says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Now, in no way is Jesus critiquing smart business model. That's not what this is about. Is he okay with you making plans and making profit? Yes. Here's the bad side as we continue through this. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, 
For him it is sin. Now there's a story that Jesus also talks about. And in the story that he talks about, he talks about this farmer that had these, this big barn and he filled it with all his grain and stuff. And he had so much grain left over that he was like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I guess I'll build a bigger barn and I'll store it there. And it even says in the text something to the effect of, and then I'll say to my soul, soul, you have much stored up for many a time. Eat, drink, be merry, and enjoy life. And then Jesus says, you're a fool. Today your, your life is going to be demanded of you. Now, my wife and I, we have a retirement account. On the flip side, I understand after church right now, right now, I could have some kind of an aneurysm, drop dead right here in front of y'all, and she would be on her own, and whatever finances we have, that's what she's got. Now, I pray that that's not the case. But I believe that our God would take care of her. I believe that this church would take care of her and the kids if that happens. And so it's not a concern of mine. But we still plan. We plan that I won't have an aneurysm and drop dead today and that I'm going to live to be however old and statistically probably die before her. And all the men said, we all know why, right? And I'm just kidding. But then I need to provide for her. And we're planning for her retirement and her end-of-life care. And so, yeah, we're planning. But God knows our time, right? We talked about this earlier, too. Biblical planning entails some of these other things we talked about. My care, my concern for my life, my concern for my wife is not greater than God's concern for my wife. And so, therefore, we can make our plans and hold them in open hands. And we can still say, hey, even if, even if the economy tanks and we lose everything that we have, you know what? We'll still be okay. And then it provides us opportunity with money that we've saved and stuff like that when things come up that we can then facilitate generosity, and that is what God wants for you. And I, Now, I, I feel like I've said a lot of things that kind of make you think that I'm, I'm the spender, she's the Scrooge. So if it were just me, we'd have nothing, okay? We'd have a lot of stuff, the shiny, fun stuff, and nothing in the future. And so I'm thankful that I have an aunt, okay? Um, and so here's some questions you might have to say. Uh, how much of your planning is committed to how you will make a difference for the cause of Christ. How much of your planning is committed to how you'll make a difference for the cause of Christ, and how much of your planning is committed to your standard of living in the future? Another question might be, in order to plan properly, what immediate wants are you giving up? And I said wants, not needs. And then lastly, how do you respond when your plan doesn't work? Develop a godly dislike for debt. Now, this is where Dave Ramsey would get up and say, hallelujah, amen, and maybe do a dance up and down the aisle. I don't know. But he talks about this, and I'm going to two, Proverbs 22, 7, Proverbs 22, 26, and 27. Uh, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. Proverbs 22, 26, thank you in the back. Be not one of those who give pledges who put up security for debts if you have nothing with which to pay why should your bed be taken from under you so it's this whole idea of getting up over your head right what happens with debt and he would say not all debt is bad we we take on debt from time to time but there's some principles we need to think of when we think about taking on debt 
and when we're, when we're walking through debt, some principles that we ought to be in mind of that connect the gospel to debt. Firstly is this. Um, our debt, our main debt, has already been paid. Therefore, why would you subjugate yourself to another debt? Because debt is always slavery. We are slaves to sin before Christ. Christ frees us from that. And so therefore, why put yourself under bondage of slavery, of sin again? Same thing with you know, financial freedom. That's the whole thing with Dave Ramsey, with his stuff, with being out of debt so that you're financially free. And so if you're in debt today, here's some principles that I want you to think through. Or if you're toying with the idea of debt, and as a church, when we talk about building projects and things like that, I don't think debt is always bad. At the same time, we need to have good principles for debt. Debt places the debtor at the mercy of the creditor, meaning they can take what you have if you're in that debt. Secondly, debt can encourage lack of commitment, or I'm sorry, lack of contentment and a selfish heart. Because if you're in debt, then you're always thinking to yourself, I need more money, I need more money because I've got this burden of debt. And selfishness, right? Well, I would love to give to that charity or I'd love that missionary or that organization or whatever it is, or I'd love to give more to the church or, or whatever that is. And again, this is not a sermon about you giving to the church. But on the flip side, if you're under that crushing weight of debt, how can you? You're, you're, all, you're always going to feel like you can't do these things because you're too busy worried about this. And then debt automatically limits the options and presumes on the future. There's things that we have to do then that maybe we don't have to do, but we have to do it because of the debt. Let me explain that convoluted, weird statement I just made. If you're working at a job that you hate and you're there because you have to have that job because if you lose that job, you have no idea how you're going to pay the debt, you're now a slave. You should have the ability to have freedom that if, if that environment is not one for you or if it doesn't work out anymore if, or if you have personal Christian convictions that you have to press down to continue to work at that place or do the jobs that you're doing, be asked by the boss to do the things that you're doing. And you have to because if you leave, you're not sure how you're going to pay for that debt. You are in slavery. And so debt automatically limits your options and presumes on the future. I mean, what if you die? Then who's going to be left with that debt? You're going to leave that to your kids or to your wife or to your friends and family. Now, we live in a culture that says, write it off. We live in a culture that says, I have student loans, you should pay for them. We live in a culture that says, hey, I'm, I'm doing bankruptcy, so, you, you know, whatever. We're just going to get out of it and move on, and we're going to leave that for other people to deal with. A casual attitude toward debt fails to understand its significance, its consequences, and its impact not only on ourselves but on others. And as the church, the impact that we have in this community to be a witness to them. So here are some checks that you can have on an attitude of debt and that we as a church ought to foster for an attitude of debt, especially if we ever have the opportunity of talking about a building project or something, which I would love to have that talk someday, but here's some things we have to keep in mind. One, a firm and wholehearted commitment to repay the debt as soon as possible. You know, we can give extra to pay off debt. And we should be giving extra to pay off debt so we're no longer a slave to it and we're free from that. Second principle is that the asset gained could pay off the loan immediately if necessary. And then a third rule for a check on your attitude is that you don't need heroic measures to pay off that debt. Meaning you're not, you're not planning on receiving a 15% raise annually to be able to support the debt that you've taken out. 
because that's unrealistic. You shouldn't even presume on a 3% annual raise to pay off the debt that you've occurred. I have more on that, but we're going to keep going because of time. Develop a godly, yes. Generosity. This is the end. And of course you would think, of course, pastor, you're going to talk about generosity. Listen, I'm not talking about for us. I'm not talking about for our church. I'm talking about in general, as a Christian. And let me tie it to the gospel. Jesus gave everything for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That's you. Personally, not just the world, not just, you know, a southern y'all, but God loved you so much that he gave Jesus for you, for a propitiation for your sin. How can we not be generous? And then tying it back to the very first point, if we are a steward of what God has given us, of all things, how can we not then be generous when it's not even ours to begin with? Romans 8.32, look at that and tell me what in the world, what has he withheld from you? So generosity to God is a statement of our appreciation to him. And generosity to God can look in a lot of different ways. It can look to your tithes and offerings to a church. Yeah, it sure can. It can also look to your, your generosity and your gifts that you give to others who are in need. Remember it says in Scripture that, that true religion is care for widows and the poor. And it used to be that we didn't need things like disability and Social Security because the church would actually take care of people who were truly destitute. So generosity to God is a statement of our appreciation to him. Generosity is supposed to be sacrificial, meaning that we have to give up something for ourselves to give something to someone else or to God. Generosity should be considered a privilege, not a burden. And generosity should extend outside of the local church. So this is not a sermon trying to get you to give more. Again, I hate it when I hear pastors do that kind of stuff. Now we do have means for you to give. You can give in the box back down there. We used to pass the plate, and then COVID happened, and then well, I don't whatever. You can give online. You can give in the thing. But in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15, it talks about it being a privilege and a sacrifice. There's a section. You can read the whole section. I'm going to take some, uh, but I'm going to try to keep it in context. You can check me on your own because I know you guys are Bereans, and I'm happy about that. So 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15 is the the overall context. What's happening there is Paul is taking up a collection, and he's going to talk to a, a part of the church in Macedonia. Macedonia is a poor church considering all these other places, right? And he's, he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is a wealthy church. And he's talking about these folks in Macedonia. And uh, Nick is going to, he's already there. He's on the ball. He gets a raise. Um, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they, have gave according, uh, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and be beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, 
not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Here's the situation that's happening here. Paul's going to them. He's telling them that there's another sister church that's in need. Paul even tells them, you don't need to give. I know that you guys are not well off. And the Macedonians say, how dare you? How dare you not allow us to participate in caring for a sister church? Is that your mentality towards Christ? That we are stewards of what he has given us? That they give according to their means? And he, as Paul is testifying, even beyond their means, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Is that the the conversations you're having with your spouse? Because that would be a great money fight. You guys want to outgive each other to be generous with people for the work of Christ? I want to give 500. Well, I want to give 2 grand. Well, what are you going to sell then? My fishing boat, of course, you know. You having that conversation? Probably not, right? So here's some questions. How has the concept of celebrating God's goodness been communicated in your family? Has it been communicated in your family? Is it obvious to your spouse, to your children, to your parents, to others in your sphere? Do they see you as generous because they recognize that you, you recognize that, is, is generosity recognized in you because other people see that you recognize what Christ has given to you? And so therefore, you're generous. Another question just practically is how much per year do you spend caring for the needs of others? If we're going to talk about budgets, is there a line item in that for you? Another question, when you spend money for things for your own enjoyment, is there a recognition that God has blessed you? Not only in lip service, but in the way you talk, pray, and worship. Because it's okay. Again, this, this also isn't a sermon of saying, You shouldn't have nice things. That's not what I'm saying. Last question I'll leave you with before we close. Have you experienced growth in the last five years in your ability to be generous both in attitude and action? And if not, why? Have you experienced growth in the last five years in your ability to be generous both in attitude and in action And if not, then why? And is it because you're not applying some of these other things? Is it because you're not being a good steward? Is it because you're not content? Is it because you have concerns that you think God doesn't share? Is it because you're not exercising wisdom biblically over your finances? Is it because you have not developed a godly dislike for debt? Or is it because, truth be told, you're less generous because you're less appreciative than you should be? Um, Here's how I want to close this. Uh, The reason that people fight in their marriage over finances or the reason that you personally are struggling over finances, I can tell you without a doubt, it's because you need a deeper connection of the gospel to your wallet. Now, these are just seven principles. If, if If you want a copy of these, I have extra notes that you can get or I can email you a copy or whatever that. But here's the deal. This takes time to put in practice. I don't expect that if you're in debt or if you're having money issues that this is going to be solved overnight just because you came to two sermons and you heard these and everything's fixed. That's not how this works. It works through 
steadfast dying to ourselves and continuing to apply this on a daily, which then turns into a weekly, which then turns into a monthly, which then turns into a yearly basis that then becomes a lifelong shift from less God-honoring to more God-honoring. And there's all kinds of various degrees in that. And none of us have made it. And so myself, the other elders here, Dave Ramsey, there's all kinds of other things that you can do that you can be participating in to help refresh you and give you practical means to applying this. Now, this was an overarching thing. If you want more practical application of this for you personally, I would love to meet with you. We can set up a time to talk about finances and those kind of things. If you're uncomfortable bringing that to me, then I can point you to books or to podcasts or to other things that you can do some self-teaching. But connecting the gospel to our wallets is what we must have to, coin, to steal the phrase, to have financial peace. Because the gospel connected to any area of our lives brings peace because he's the prince of peace. And he tells us, it's a guarantee, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, a peace that surpasses all understanding. So if you're here this morning, whether you're married or single, and you have issues with your finances, I beg you, please connect the gospel to your wallet. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we recognize and we herald you and thank you because we live in a country that is wealthy. And each of us here this morning are wealthy in the world's standards. And yet you have told us to not be of the world, but just in it. And so help us, God, as we are in the world and yet trying to seek after you, will you please help us to apply these things and connect the gospel to our pocketbooks? that you would make us better stewards, that you would help us find contentment, that we would be generous, that we would have a biblical, wise understanding of both debt and planning, that we would move forward in these things, not for Elegant Bible Church, but because you are worthy of them, God, because you own all these things and you have given them to us and you have made us stewards and because it is our heart's desire to worship you with every facet of our being please help us each of us to apply these either for the first time or to a greater degree that we might be the hands and feet of christ it's it's for your name and for your glory alone we ask these things and so we say amen